This past summer, Michelle, Leo, and I attended a minor league baseball game for the Asheville Tourists in Asheville, North Carolina. And as we're walking into the stadium, there is this large life-size picture on one of their walls of Craig Biggio in his Asheville Tourists baseball uniform from somewhere in the 1980s. Do you know who Craig Biggio is? Hall of Fame baseball player, right? Entire career with the Houston Astros. Growing up a big baseball fan myself, even though I was in Ohio, Craig Biggio was one of my very favorite players. And so when we walk by that picture, I start blabbering. Oh my gosh, Craig Biggio. Mind you, this is not Craig Biggio in person. It's a life-size picture of him from 30 years ago. Still, I'm enthralled. We get to our seats, and as we're sitting down, I say, I, th- I think we've got to get a photo with Craig Biggio. <laughs> I eventually have the three of us shuffle back down our row and, and, and back down the stairs to the sign so we can take a photo with the photo of Craig Biggio. Michelle takes the photo, and I realize Leo and I are standing just a bit too much in front of Craig. We've got to do this again. <laughs> we've got to get this right. Truly, I worry if... Craig Bijou himself had been there, how I might have reacted. I mean, who would be the person for you where it'd be pretty cool to have a picture? I mean, maybe it is a Hollywood actor or an athlete or a musician. Maybe it's someone a lot of us don't even know, but in your field of study, your field of work, your field of interest, that person is just the best. Who would that person be if if they were right here in worship? You'd have this distinct sense of excitement like this. This is a brush with fame. This is too good to be true. We're going to need to get a picture. Or as Paul asks it, who is the one who's the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Name them. In Paul's day, the great orators, the great rhetoricians who could speak with eloquence and power and persuasion, they were the stars of the day. They were Hollywood. They were the athletes. They were the Instagram influencer. Who are the noteworthy ones? Paul essentially asks. For they represented the wisdom of the world, as Paul calls it in this passage. It's not that these people are necessarily bad or or wrong or anything like that, but they represent this way of thinking in society that assumes that those with the most fame, the most influence, the best degrees, the most distinguished family name, the most athletic or the most creative or the most intelligent, they're they're the blessed ones. They have a little more status, a little more regard, a little more honor given to them. They're the ones with whom you'd want a photo because who doesn't want to have a little bit of an association with the blessed? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world is Paul's Next question. Hasn't the assumption uh, about this world and and who's on top and where the power is and who can actually change the world, hasn't that been made foolish by God? And then he explains, because, you know, we proclaim Christ crucified. Christ, Messiah, a figure at the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures who is understood to be a, a deliverer with power, status, influence. We proclaim Christ dead. Actually, it's worse than just a Messiah who who died. The cross 
was a public instrument of torture used by the Roman Empire to hang political dissidents and criminals. To be crucified is not only to die, but to do so in great shame and pain. More, as we know from other scriptures, upon the cross, Jesus experiences a sense of utter abandonment even from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so when Paul says, we proclaim Christ crucified, he's saying, where the world looks for those with with power and intelligence and status and seeks to follow them or trust them or believe them to be higher and better or desires to be more and more like them, we look to follow and trust and believe in the power of one convicted a criminal hanging upon a cross, sensing himself abandoned by God. We'll take pictures with that one. In fact, we'll go ahead and put that cross right there at the center of our worship spaces. Why does God choose the way foolishness. Theologian Jurgen Moltmann makes this observation about God's choice. God does not become a religion, he says, so that humanity participates in God by corresponding religious thoughts and feelings. God does not become a law so that humanity participates in God through obedience to the law. If I just keep the law, I'm growing closer to God and God's way. God does not become an ideal so that humanity achieves community with God through constant striving. God humbles himself and takes upon himself the eternal death of the godless and the God-forsaken, so that all of the godless and the God-forsaken can experience communion with God. God's heart is so bent on being with and for the godless and God-forsaken The God goes to the depth of all darkness and shame, and there resides, there communes, there reconciles. And there, as well, Paul says, God shows forth a power greater than all the things that status and money and fame and reputation can ever achieve. As the message translation puts verse 25, human strength can't even begin to compete with God's weakness. Christ crucified is a proclamation that cuts opposite of so many assumptions we live by about who has power, how things change, where God shows up. But is it true? Paul perhaps anticipates this question, and he nods in two directions in today's passage to help give a response. First, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 29, 14, which reads, I, God, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, Paul nods back to the scriptures themselves and invites the church to consider that this foolish way of thinking is is not new for God. For some time now, hasn't God changed this world for good in ways that make no sense to the wisdom of this world? And perhaps the church hears this ancient word from Isaiah, which Paul is quoting, and they begin to think of some of the other ancient stories of the faith and of Scripture that they hold so dear. All the way back to Genesis. After all, didn't didn't God call forth a people to bless all the nations? And didn't God not start with uh, some of the great monarchs or empires of the world to begin this endeavor, but but chose a, a, a couple that were childless senior citizens far beyond the the child-bearing age, Abram and Sarai. 
foolish to start there. The Exodus is led by a man named Moses, who is fearful, resistant to God, a murderer, and he stutters when he speaks in public. Rahab, the woman whose actions are most critical in in saving God's people at one time, uh, she's a prostitute, a foreigner of another religion. Ruth, this central example of faithfulness, a critical person in the lineage that would eventually birth Jesus himself, she's a foreigner and outsider to God's people. David, in a society that assumed, the, the wisdom of the world, assumed the eldest is the blessed one, the, the, the one of greater stature, rank. It's David, the youngest son, the youngest brother, the shepherd boy who God chooses as king. The truth is, one can scan the scriptures for a while and time and again discover the frequency with which God just does not pay attention to the wisdom of the world, which would say that there really are certain more worthy, uh, more powerful people, better people through whom you really should work if you're going to change things for good. If anything, God has long been in the business of choosing people no one would think to get a photo with. Too old, too cowardly, too immoral, too foreign, too young. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Search your own scriptures for the people among whom God likes to work. That's the first direction Paul nods with his allusion to Isaiah. And then Paul nods in a second direction to to make his point that God's foolish power is true. He says, consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble, notable birth. And Paul implies, and yet even among you, a diverse and strong and growing church has arisen. Do not your own lives, Corinthians, testify that God's foolish power is true. Just consider your own call. Mary Carr is an English professor at Syracuse University. She wrote a memoir entitled Lit, which recounts in her own words, my journey from black belt sinner and lifelong agnostic to unlikely Catholic. At one point in her memoir, she's fairly well-regarded, even famous in her field, but also particularly low as an alcoholic. She's contemplated suicide, tried to overdose. She lives in a Miss Havisham kind of house, not because she's living in the past, but because she's just that oblivious. And at this particularly low moment, she's hunched over a toilet. And she begins to cry out to the God she does not believe in. She begins yelling at God for her life and the things she's endured, the God-forsakenness that she has known. And then, I feel something stir in me a small wisp of something in my chest, frail as smoke. Her four-year-old son, Dev, and her deceased father come to mind. Thanks for them, she blurts out. Then she writes about how right there in the silence above the toilet she first hears God. Listen to how she describes this. An idea, the thread of a different perspective than any I've ever had It's a thought so counterintuitive, so unlike how I think, 
It feels as if it originates outside me. The voice, the idea, comes in the solid quiet in the midst of psychic chaos saying, if Dev hadn't been sick so much, you'd have kept drinking. If your son had not been sick so much, and you can read in the book, he has been sick a lot in his first four years of life, which meant Mary Carr has been taking a lot of extra care for him. If he hadn't been so sick, you'd have been drinking more. It would have been worse. Carr goes on to say this about the voice she heard. Vis-a-vis God speaking to me. I don't mean the voice of Charlton Heston playing Moses booming from on high. But a reversal of attitude so contrary to my typical thoughts, so solidly true as to be divinely external and quiet these thoughts are, strong and quiet. She does not speak of knowing God in her moment of career, status, or glory, of which she has plenty. The world did not know God through wisdom, Paul writes. Nor does she speak of of God's voice as an all-powerful Charlton Heston on high kind of thing, as if God were speaking like a mighty sign from heaven uh, in a way we probably all wish God would do so as to be just a bit more clear. Oh, but she speaks of clarity, right? She speaks of knowing God in her space of deepest shame and forsakenness. And God's presence comes humbly. I feel something stir in me, a small wisp, frail as smoke, but then also powerfully, right? A solid quiet, solidly quiet, solidly true, strong and quiet. Carr is grasping for a way to talk about this encounter with something at once frail, quiet, and humble, but then also strong and solid and holds her and lifts her. And if you go on and finish the book, you know that is the voice that continues to lead her and anchor her in who she is becoming in this life. In short, she's considering her own call. And a woman who's an expert with language is just grasping at language to describe the foolish, of pa- foolish power of God made known in her total weakness, a power far exceeding any she had known via the wisdom of the world of which she has had plenty. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. As we scan our own lives, What if we set aside the litany of places we've lived or visited, the schools we've attended, the jobs we've accomplished, the ranks achieved, the people we've met? What if for a moment we set some of the wisdom aside? Instead, what if we scan for some of the most godless or God-forsaken terrains we've known? Perhaps seasons of deep shame or grief Injustice or failure or loss or emptiness. Terrain for which we probably will never really have a full answer. And yet, have you known Christ crucified? Have we known the presence of God in solidarity with us, even for us, frail and strong? In our own spaces of weakness, frailty, weakness, and foolishness. Have, have we known Jesus to meet us, to love us, even begin filling us with a power far exceeding any we have glimpsed by way of the wisdom of the world? After all, we proclaim Christ 
crucified. And, by the way, if we're wondering where Jesus is at work right now in our lives or even in our world or our situation, what if we stopped looking for for sort of powerful signs on high or, or wisdom from all the credentialed strong places we normally like to go first? And what if we lean toward some of the foolish and failing and forsaken spaces within or even in our midst? Has not God long been in the business of birthing the most enduring power and love from precisely such spaces? I think one of the central ways you know that a church has truly experienced the foolish power of God is this. Not only do they consider and scan their own calls and see how Jesus has, in fact, shown up in the foolish. More and more, they are full of that same Jesus who has raised them. And so they, the church, they start showing up in foolish places. They start showing up in solidarity and love among those too old, too cowardly, too immoral, too foreign, too young. They show up along the godless and the godforsaken. They show up where no one's thinking about taking a picture. And they do so not in strength but humility, not with answers but with love. And they show up because they're full of Jesus, and quite frankly, Jesus can't help but go among the godless and the godforsaken. That's where he resides. That's where he communes. This is the foolishness of God. May we know God's power made perfect in weakness. Amen.